thank you that it never returns void. And Lord, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would accomplish all that you have set forth for your word to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, grab your Bibles. We are going to be in a very familiar and very famous passage of Scripture that I would be willing to guarantee all of you have heard before. Not only if you've ever been around church life for a length of time, but if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard this passage of Scripture before. This is the famous marriage passage from Ephesians chapter 5. And now, let me get the elephant out of the room real quick. I am 26 years old. I have been married for three years, going on four I'm going to be preaching on marriage this morning, both in this service and in the next, to people who've been married since before I was alive. I'm not by any means a marriage expert. Just ask my wife, or better yet, please don't ask my wife. I do not have a wealth of personal experience that I, I know is absolutely invaluable to this conversation. But, but what I do have to offer us this morning, I think is a lot better, which is what God has to say about marriage from his word. So I'm really excited for the opportunity to talk about this. So on the one hand, when I started prepping this message, I was slightly intimidated because of what I just shared. But on the other hand, I was really excited because I love marriage. Being married these last three and a half years has been the, the best experience of my life. I got married young. I was 23. My wife was 20. We wouldn't change a thing about it. We love being married. And I can remember when Megan and I first started dating, uh, I was actually going to a conference. I was with Pastor Joey. I was with Brian, who just led us in singing. Joel was there. Some of our other friends from Coastal were going to this conference. Megan and I had just started dating the week before this conference. And Pastor Joey's driving the bus, and I'm sitting in the back. And he yells out, I'm not going to imitate his Georgia accent, but Pastor Joey yells out, hey, Nate, are you dating the Briggs babysitter? Because at this time, Megan used to babysit Harmony and Alexis. And I said, well, yeah. Y'all getting married? Well, you know, that's pretty quick. We just started dating this week, but I don't know. I like her. I hope so. We'll see how it goes. He said, well, I mean, do you love her? I think so. I mean, she's great. Do you love Jesus? Yeah. Well, then what are you waiting for, man? Call her and put her on speakerphone. I'll marry y'all right now. <laughs> Maybe that was just a little quick. But the point is, marriage is awesome, but it's under assault today in our culture, and it has been for a long time. Marriage is this beautiful, wonderful thing that has been given to us by God for our good, but it's been under assault. All you have to do is look at the divorce rates that have just been rising and rising, both in and outside of the church. Look at the phenomenon of putting off marriage longer and longer and longer, people waiting longer and longer and longer to get married. Think about the redefinition of marriage that took place at our nation's highest level five years ago. Marriage has been absolutely under attack in our culture, and even in the popular mindset, right? If you watch the sitcoms, you're not going to get this idea that marriage is this beautiful, wonderful gift from God that has been given to us for our good. The popular way of thinking about marriage today is have all of your fun, and then when you get old and tired, you can settle down and give your life away. But let me tell you, I got married young, and I wouldn't change a thing about it. I love marriage. I think marriage is a beautiful, wonderful thing, and it's given to us for our good. And I hope that this morning, as we study this text together, we can have a more biblical picture of what marriage is. We can understand our roles in it as husbands and wives, and we can begin to understand as a local church how our marriages can reflect the ultimate marriage of Jesus Christ and the church. So this morning, here's the game plan. Here's the outline. I want to address wives on what it looks like to submit to your husbands, as this text teaches us. 
I wanna address husbands about what it means to love your wives self-sacrificially. But I want all of us to understand and have a big picture vision, a bird's eye heaven view of marriage so that we can understand what's the purpose, what's the meaning, what is this beautiful mystery that God has given us. But if you're here and you're not married, maybe you're here and you're single, maybe you're here and you know, you're waiting for marriage a little bit later, I hope that you won't tune out, but I hope that you will use Ephesians chapter five as the standard, as the standard for what we should be looking for when we are pursuing a spouse. I like to tell young ladies, listen, he's not gonna be funny forever. In fact, if he's funny now, I guarantee you five years from now, you're not gonna think he's funny anymore. Beauty, hotness, all of it fades We need a biblical standard when we are looking for a spouse. And Ephesians chapter five is that standard. So this morning, I hope that we can get a biblical picture of what marriage is and how God has ordained it for our good. So with this in mind, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter five. I just wanna read the whole passage together and then we'll take a look at it together. So Ephesians five, we'll start in verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you. We confess this morning that apart from you working in our lives, we can't do what this text requires of us. So Lord, we ask for your grace. We ask for your strength by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help us to be the husbands and the wives in the church that you have called us to be for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first part of this text says this, wives, submit to your own husbands. That's our first point this morning. And again, I'm a 26-year-old man about to tell wives to submit to their husbands. What could possibly go wrong? You know, this is far and away, it's no secret, this is controversial. In 2020, United States of America, this is not, this is the most politically incorrect thing you could possibly say, is wives, submit to your own husbands. But ironically enough, when this was written around 60 AD, this was probably the least controversial part of this passage. Because back in the first century, the status of women is not what the status of women is today. And we praise God for the progress that has been made in that area. In the first century, women were treated as second-class citizens at best and property at worst. So in the first century, the controversial part of this text was not wives submit to your husbands. They would have read that and went, well, duh. The controversial part would have been husbands love your wives as yourself. So we can see that and we can praise God that how the influence of Christianity and Western civilization has led to the elevation 
of women to be seen as equally made in the image of God. But nevertheless, the text still tells us, wives, submit to your husbands. So we have to do some work. We have to dig into this text and see what does this mean. And I want to say right at the, out of the gate, ladies, God does not call on you to submit to your husbands because you are less valuable, because you are less intelligent, because you are less capable, or anything else. Submission is not about equality. It's not about dignity. It's not about value. It's not about worth. We learned from the very beginning of the story that man and women are both made equally in the image of God, completely equal in dignity and worth and value. So this is not about value. It's about responsibility. It's about the different roles that God has given to men and women within the marriage relationship. These distinctions that were existed before the fall into sin that God ordained for our good, for our flourishing. So this dynamic in marriage of submission and headship is the way that God designed marriage to function. And when we listen to God, when we obey God's word instead of what the culture is telling us, I promise that it will lead to flourishing in our marriages and it will lead to health in our local church. So let's dig in a little bit. The text tells us that wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. The Greek word for submit in the original language, it's actually a military term. It means to choose to be in a rank lower than, to choose to be second in command. And now, if any of you in here are in the military, you know that it doesn't necessarily mean that your superior is smarter than you. And many times he's not. <laughs> but you can still choose to be in the role of second in command. So what the text is teaching us is that as the church submits to Jesus, so wives must also submit to their own husbands. And by the way, that is how we know that this text is not culturally conditioned. In other words, this is how we know that this text applies to us today. There would be those who would argue that texts like Ephesians chapter 5 that talk about submission, man, that was just for that culture in the first century. That was just for that church. That was just for that time. But that doesn't apply to us today. We have progressed beyond that today. But the clue that we have here is that this is not grounded in shifting cultural norms. This is grounded in the gospel itself. In the way that God has created us, it is submit as to the Lord. So we have to understand what submission is. But before we do that, how about we say a few things that it's not? So first of all, ladies, wives in this room, submission is not about being a doormat. Submission does not mean that you're never allowed to have your own opinion. It doesn't mean that your husband is your boss and you are just an employee and you just need to be quiet and let him call all the shots. That's absolutely not what it means. What else does it not mean? Submission is not absolute. It is not unconditional. In other words, your husband does not have the authority to lead you into sin. In fact, if that ever is the case, if he is trying to lead you down a sinful path, you must submit to God instead of him in a loving, respectful way to be sure. But it is not absolute in the sense that he can lead you into sin. And finally, I want to reiterate this. Submission is not about being less capable. It's not about being less intelligent. Absolutely not. It's about the roles and responsibilities that God has given us in marriage. So with those caveats out of the way, what is it? What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Well, I was talking to a friend of this last week, and he gave me a great illustration. I told him I was going to steal it. I've been in school for a long time. I've been in school since like 2014, and I've got two more years left on my master's degree, so it's probably never going to end. But so I've submitted a lot of papers 
in this time. I, you could probably get all my papers together. It'd be a couple of books by now, all the papers that I've turned in. What do I do when I've completed a paper? How do I give it to my professor? Well, I submit this paper to my professor. That's the word that we use. I submit my paper. I do all the work. I do all the studying. I think really hard and I put this paper together and then I submit it to my professor. I put it into my professor's hands. So submission does not mean that I don't think. It doesn't mean that I don't work hard in this relationship with me and my professor. It means that I do the work and then I put it into the hands of another. I put it into his hands and I trust him with his responsibility to do what he will with the paper. So fundamentally, I believe that submission is choosing to honor the role that God has given your husband as the leader, as the head of your home. And in a, in a gospel-centered marriage, in a healthy marriage, sub submission should be the natural response to loving leadership. When your husband is being the godly man that God has called him to be, when he is loving you as Jesus loved the church, this kind of godly submission should be the natural overflow of that. And again, that's not always the case, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But it should be this, this dance, if you will, this give and take, this complementary relationship. And ultimately, ladies, your model in this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who, in his incarnation, though completely equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He submitted himself to the will of his heavenly father. So in submitting to your husbands, you have the opportunity to be like Jesus. You have the opportunity to follow his example in submitting himself to the will of the father. And that in and of itself shows us that submission is not demeaning, that it's not oppressive because Jesus himself was willing to do this to the will of the father. I like the way that, it, that Paul puts it in Titus chapter two. He said, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. I love this last part, that the word of God may not be reviled. Ladies, you have this unique opportunity in lovingly submitting to your husbands to bring glory to God. In fact, it defends the testimony of the word of God. He even says that the word of God may not be reviled. This is an opportunity for you to choose to honor God by your obedience to his word. And what does submission look like? Well, fundamentally, I believe that submission is about respect. It's about respect. Verse 33 says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And you know, the apostle Paul doesn't get enough credit for this verse, for how psychologically in tune he is. Let me explain what I mean by that. For the husband to be the man of God that he is called to be, for him to be the leader in the home God has called him to be, there's one thing he fundamentally needs to be able to do that, and that's respect. Ladies, there's nothing that makes a man feel like less of a man, makes him feel smaller than a lack of respect. And likewise, in this reciprocal relationship, it's really hard for a wife to submit to a husband who is not loving her self-sacrificially. We need these two things as fuel to be able to do the responsibility that God has given us. So I wanna talk for just a minute, ladies, about what it means to respect your husband because he needs this if he's going to be the man of God that God has called him to be. So first, don't put your husband down. 
Don't cut him down in front of other people. Don't gossip about your husband to your friends, but instead be his biggest cheerleader. Be his biggest encourager in your relationship. Use your words to build him up, to help him, to encourage him. Second, don't be quarrelsome. Uh, Or in other words, don't be argumentative. It says in the book of Proverbs uh, a lot about the quarrelsome wife. I won't even repeat these Proverbs. You can go read them for yourself, Proverbs 21, 19. But the idea is instead of being argumentative, instead of nagging, instead of these kinds of things, let there be open and honest and loving and humble, respectful communication. And the third thing is listen to your husband. When he talks, listen. Trust me, ladies, I'm going to get on the men for this in a minute because we're terrible at that one. We're a lot worse at that one than you. But I believe in all my heart that listening is the foundation to good communication. And if you haven't noticed, all three of those things that I just mentioned under respect have to do with communication. One time I was talking to Pastor David, and I asked him, in all of your years of marriage counseling and pastoral ministry, and it's been years, you know, and years, and years. Uh, Just kidding. It's been like 10 years. He's only 25. Um, What are the things that you have seen the most in your time of marriage counseling in the church? Without missing a beat, Pastor David said, money, sex, and communication. And problems with money and sex are usually problems with communication. One thing that I can promise you when it comes to marriage is communication is absolutely the key. You have to be able to communicate with each other. And you know what's the most important thing about communication? It's not talking. It's listening. We have to be good listeners. And trust me, ladies, don't worry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hammer the men for that in a little bit. But here's the question that a lot of you ladies are thinking by now. We've gone through all this stuff about submission and respect, and you've heard all of that, and you're like, Nate, that sounds great, but my husband's a moron. <laughs> so how am I supposed to do this? My husband is an idiot. Maybe my husband's not even a Christian. How am I supposed to do this? Well, thankfully, ladies, God has not left you in the dark. He addresses this directly in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so that means even if he's not doing what he's supposed to do, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. So ladies, when you choose to lovingly submit to your husband, lovingly respect your husband, even when he's not doing the right thing, even when that's really difficult to do, when you choose to walk in obedience to God's word, God can use your obedience to bring conviction to him. And God can use that to change him. That's what 1 Peter 3 is teaching us. And at this point in the sermon, what I this is just anecdotal. I could be wrong. But in my experience and having conversations with godly Christian women, most godly Christian women I know don't have as big of a hang-up with the submission thing like the world does. The world has a huge hang-up with the submission thing. Most godly Christian women, that's not their problem. Most godly Christian women, the problem is that they have husbands that are not willing to step up and be godly men. Husbands who are not willing to lead And with that in mind, I want to shift gears here, and I want to address the men in the room. Husbands, love your wives. And I want to challenge us. Men, if we enjoy that last 10 minutes, if we enjoyed all that stuff about submission, this is my challenge to all of the husbands in the room. Be a man that is worth submitting to. Be a man that's worth submitting to. John Stott said in his commentary on Ephesians, God has called wives to submit to a lover, not to an ogre. So if you're walking around acting like Shrek, 
don't be surprised when it's difficult for her to submit to you. We just talked about 1 Peter chapter 3. Men, don't put your wife in a 1 Peter chapter 3 situation. Be a godly man so that she will desire to submit to you. And how can we do that, men? How can we love our wives? Well, Paul has given us two illustrations in this text of how we are supposed to love our wives. And the first is this. We are called to love as Christ loved the church. Here's my wedding ring. On the inside of my wedding ring, you can't see it because it's really small, but it's inscribed Ephesians 5.25. I did that because that is my job description as a husband. Men in this room, Ephesians 5.25 is your job description. And it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And guys, that is the highest possible standard we could ever have. How do you love as Jesus loved the church? Do you know what Jesus did for the church? He gave up his life for her. He went to the cross for her. That is what it means. It is self-sacrificial love. Jesus is called in scripture the last Adam or the second Adam. You know what the first Adam did to his wife? He let her take the fall. He said, Lord, it was that woman that you gave me. It is her fault. Lord, punish her instead. You know what the last Adam did? Even though his bride was the one that was guilty, Jesus said, she's guilty, but Lord, let me take the fall. Let me take the punishment for my bride. Jesus loved his bride better than the first Adam ever did, and he gave up his life for her self-sacrificially. He went to the cross paying her debt in full. So men, we are called to die to ourselves every day and be faithful to our wives. You know, that famous question used to be on bracelets back in the 90s, WWJD. What does that mean? What would Jesus do? Men in marriage, you have to ask yourself all the time, how would Jesus love the church? And the answer to that question is how you need to love your wife. Would Jesus ever cheat on the church? No. Would Jesus ever leave the church? No. Would Jesus ever abuse the church, either with his words or with his actions? No. Of course not. Men, that is our standard. We are called to love our wives as Jesus has loved us. And guess what? That's hard. (laughs) That's really hard. Self-sacrificial love is the hardest thing in the world. And sometimes it can feel like nails going through your hands, but it is what we are called to. And it is what God will empower us to do by the power of his Holy Spirit. We are called to love as Christ loved the church, but that's not the only picture he gives us. We are to love as we love ourselves. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So men, we are called to love our wives the same way that we love our own bodies. And I know some of y'all might be looking down and going, Hey, Nate, guess what? I don't love my body that much. I'd rather have a six-pack. Not that kind of six-pack, the good kind of six-pack. That's not what he means by loving your body here. What he's talking about is the fact that you hopefully took a shower this morning. The fact that you ate breakfast this morning. The time that you put on, the fact that you put on clothes this morning. We love our bodies by providing for our bodies, by protecting our bodies. In the same way, men, we are called to love our wives by prioritizing her needs as higher than our own instinctually, without even having to be taught or think about it, we make our needs the center of our lives. My biggest priority in my life is making sure that I get fed, that I have water to drink, that I have clothes to wear, that I have a place to sleep. Men, in marriage, 
You are now one flesh with her. So she is now your highest priority, even higher than yourself. That is what we are called to. And as I studied this text, as I looked at those two metaphors of loving your wife as Christ loved the church and loving her as you love yourself, I was able to pull out four elements of biblical love that I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking with you. And now there are, to be sure, more than just these four ways that we are called to love our wives. But I think these four are foundational for what it means to love our wives. So let's take a look at these. The first is this, love is provision. Men, we have a responsibility just as we provide for our own bodies to provide for our wives, to provide for our families. At the end of the day, men, God is going to hold you accountable if your family is not cared for, if your family is not provided for. We have this responsibility and it's not about being the breadwinner. I like to say to guys, if your wife makes more money than you, cha-ching, that's awesome. Good for you. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. You are responsible to provide for your families. I love what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3. He said, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. When it comes to provision, we have to be clear that a godly man will not be a lazy man. Hard work is a gift from God. It is a good thing from God. It existed before sin, and I think it's going to exist in heaven. It's not the work that's the problem. It's the thorns and the thistles that are the problem. So this is really important, especially for young ladies who are looking at potential mates and men. Do not marry a lazy man. When you're looking at a guy, if he is not absolutely committed to working hard and providing for your family, don't give him a second look. Because listen, if he just wants to play Xbox now, that might be fun now, but a couple years from now, it's not going to be that funny. Find a man who is willing to work hard to provide for your family. That is fundamental to what love is. But next, what about protection? We protect our own bodies. We clothe our own bodies. We shelter our bodies in the storm. We got a hurricane coming. I know it seems like we forgot about it because there's so much other crazy stuff happening this year, but we're all gonna take measures to protect ourselves from storms. That's what we do naturally. So men, we are called to be the protectors of our wives and the protectors of our children. We are to protect them physically from any threat. And that much should be obvious to us. But let me talk about one that might not be so obvious. Men, we're called to protect our families spiritually. We are called to protect our families from the influence of the world, from the assaults of the evil one. Men, we are called to monitor our homes carefully. If there's any sin that gets into your home, any kind of garbage entertainment, any kind of pornography, anything that gets into your home, even though if it's your wife and children indulging in it, God will hold them responsible, God's also going to hold you responsible because he's called us as men to protect our homes, spiritually speaking. So we must guard our families as we would guard our own bodies. We must be protectors, both physically and spiritually. But next, and this one's really important, we're called to be leaders. Love means leadership. God has called men to be the leader of the home. We're called to make the final decision and to set the direction, to set the vision for the family. And let me be clear here, this doesn't just mean that men are the boss. It doesn't just mean that the wife and the kids are just the employees of the boss who gets to call all the shots. Men, you absolutely need to have loving, open, honest communication with your wife because she's probably smarter than you. 
I know that's the case in my house. But nevertheless, men, the buck stops with you. You are the husband. God has called you the head of the home. So you need to step up. You need to stop being passive and instead lead the home. And what is a leader? Fundamentally, the leader in scripture is the first follower. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. As I am following Christ, I want you to follow me. Men, that is what it means for you to be the leader in the home. As you're following Christ, you need to invite your family to follow you. You are the first follower, the lead follower in your home. And fundamentally, this is spiritual. Jesus died to make the, fam- to make the church holy. So you need to die to yourself each and every day to make your wife more like Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus did in this text? He said that he died for her that he might sanctify her, having washed her with water by the word. Men, we are called to live self-sacrificially for the sanctification for our wife and for our families. And how can we do that? Well, first of all, if you are the lead follower in your home, husbands, then your family needs to observe you, needs to watch you following Jesus. Your wife and kids need to know that there are times in the day when dad is in the word, when my husband is in the word, when my husband is in prayer, they need to be able to see that. They need to see you modeling that for them. They need to know that it is important for dad to be active in the local church. Man, we need to step up when it comes to church attendance. I did some studying this last week. By far, in all of the measurable categories, women attend church more frequently than men do. Man, we've got to be active in the local church. We've got to lead the way for our families and say, come on, babe, let's get up. Let's get ready for church. Can I help you get the kids ready so we can get ready for church? We've got to emphasize that. That's part of what it means to be a spiritual leader in the home. Man, we need to be leading family worship with our families, family devotions. Let's gather our our family together. Let's turn off the TV and let's say, let's read the word together. Let's pray together. This is a crazy one. Let's even sing some songs together and worship God together as a family, making God the foundation of our homes. Man, we need to be the lead follower. And all that means is that you are being a godly Christian in front of your family and for your family and inviting them to join you in that. We need to step up, man, and we need to lead our homes spiritually. And finally, love means affection. Biblical love is affection. Love is not just emotion. That's kind of the misunderstanding of our culture. But love most certainly includes emotion. And there are some guys who would say, you know what, Nate? I'm just not very emotional. I just kind of have a stoic personality. I'm just not a very emotional guy. And I just want to tell you guys a little secret. That's a load of baloney. <laughs> There's no such thing as a not very emotional guy. Because these same not very emotional guys, do you think they're going to be not very emotional when their car breaks down? You think their car's gonna break, out, break down and they're gonna get out and go, oh, well, it seems that there's a malfunction in my engine. That's unfortunate. No, they're gonna be yelling four-letter words and kicking the tires and punching out the window and all the rest. What about at a football game when their team scores a touchdown? Do you think they're gonna go, oh, well, we now have more points than the other team. That's very convenient. No, they're gonna be jumping up and down and singing songs and dancing like fools. I know, because I've been there. It's not that some guys aren't emotional. It's that some of us guys choose not to express our love and affection for the woman who has given up her life to be with us. And man, we've got to do better. I include myself in this one. We've got to do better when it comes to showing love and showing affection for our wives, because of course, Jesus is our model in this. 
How deep is Jesus' love for the church? How deep is Jesus' affection for the church? It says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? That joy of being with you forever. Jesus modeled ultimate affection for us. So men, we are called to treat our wives with the highest level of love and affection. Your wife ought to feel like the most special person in the world to you. And what are some ways that we can do that, men? I know it's corny, but find her love language. You know, pick up that book that came out a few decades ago, The Five Love Languages. Find out how your wife is wired and become absolutely fluent in it. Take her on a date sometime. Surprise her when you come home from work with a gift. Turn off the TV and spend some quality time with your wife. Ask her, how was your day? And sit there, look her in the eyes and listen to her. Be compassionate, be sympathetic with your wife. And here's the biggest one. I think if we would learn how to do this, our marriages would change overnight. Men, we have got to become better listeners. Ladies, you can say amen if you want to. Men, we have got to become better listeners. You know, Pastor David and I are actually reading a book right now called The Lost Art of Listening. It's been a really helpful book so far about this idea of the importance of listening. We were reading it in the Yorktown campus, and one of the ladies saw the title of our book and said, can my husband join your club? (laughs) I think every wife in the church would say the same thing. Guys, we have to grow in our ability to listen to our wife. So here's some advice. When your wife starts talking, turn off your phone, turn off the TV, put down the newspaper, whatever it is, look her in the eyes and give her your full, undivided attention. I'm glad Megan's not in this service because she'd be yelling amen louder than anybody. But we have to grow in this. There's nothing that will make your wife feel more appreciated, more valued, more important, and more loved to you than something as simple as that is just listening to her. I think it's really important. So that's what biblical love looks like. There's more we could mention, but we have to provide for our wives. We have to protect our wives. We have to lead our wives, and we have to show affection to our wives. And maybe a lot of this seems a little bit overwhelming for both of us, this idea of wives submitting to your husbands, of husbands loving your wives self-sacrificially. If it doesn't sound overwhelming, then maybe I haven't been clear enough. (laughs) on what we've been called to. But if it is overwhelming, then that's a good thing. It's supposed to be. This is supposed to be difficult for us because we can't do this in our own strength. We need God's help for our marriages to be what God has called them to be. We need God's strength in our lives to do this. And we do this by remembering that Ephesians does not start in 522. It starts in 1-1. We have been chosen by God the Father from before the foundation of the earth. We have been redeemed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been raised from death to life. We've been strengthened with power in our inner being through the Holy Spirit. We've been brought into fellowship with the local church. We have put off the old self and we have put on the new self. And therefore, in light of all of that, we can do this. I know this is hard. This is really hard. Marriage is hard. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, we can do this. And I've got to close. We can do this by understanding the mystery of marriage. It says toward the end of this text, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So what's the point of all of this? Is this just so that we can have happier homes, so that we can have happier relationships here on earth? Well, if we think that way, then we'll be really short-sighted and we'll miss what God has for us in marriage. Because fundamentally, our marriage is a parable. Our marriage is a parable. 
It is not an end in and of itself. It is not a convenient social structure. It is a picture. It is a parable that points to the reason why we exist. And that reason is this in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Right there at the end of the Bible, what do we see? A wedding. We see the wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. And when we understand that, that all of our marriages are intended to be a parable pointing to this wonderful reality, then we can understand why it matters that our marriages would be godly here in this life. It's no coincidence that the Bible begins in Genesis 2 and ends in Revelation 19 with weddings. The Bible is a love story from beginning to end about a God who loved his people so much that he came to this earth to rescue them. And men, when we love our wives self-sacrificially, ladies, when you submit to your husbands as to the Lord, we get to play out this drama each and every day. Our marriages will be a living, breathing parable of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with just a couple thoughts of practical application. You could even call them thoughts to take home if you want to. Husbands and wives in this room, have a conversation together today about how your marriage can better reflect that how your marriage can be a better reflection of the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church. Be humble. Start with me. Don't pull out your laundry list for them, but ask yourself, how can I love my wife better than I have been? How can I be more submissive and more respectful and more loving toward my husband than I have been? Next, if your marriage is struggling, get help. Don't struggle alone. Man, that's what the local church is for. We offer biblical counseling here at Coastal. If you're struggling, don't wait until you're on the brink of divorce to go get help. Sometimes you just need a tune-up, and that's okay. There's no shame in getting help. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you if your marriage is struggling. Younger couples, I include myself in this one, find some couples who have done this for a while and talk to them about how they have done this, how they have lasted all these years and see what kind of wisdom you can gain for them that you can apply to your marriage. Have some other couples that you can talk to when you're struggling. That's why small groups are so important. Small groups can be vital for the health of your marriage. And finally, because I'm a nerd, you guys know I gotta recommend a book. This is a wonderful book called When Sinners Say I Do. It's a really helpful book to me. It's really short. It's only like 150 pages. The subtitle is Discovering the Power of the Gospel for marriage. If you're interested in a really great book on marriage, a really gospel-centered book, I highly commend this book to you. But in closing, as the worship team is going to come now and we're going to close with singing, it is my prayer and it's my hope for us as a local church that our marriages would begin to reflect the ultimate marriage of Jesus and the church. It's my prayer that every moment of our lives, including our time at home with our families, would be spent trying to bring glory to Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and the one who gave himself for us. So I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna close this morning by singing all glory be to Christ. So Lord, we love you. We confess that we need you, Lord. 
We need you to be able to do this, to be able to be the godly men and the godly women that you have called us to be. So Lord, fill us with your spirit. Remind us daily of the gospel, of your love for us, so that we might be the people that you have made us to be for the glory of Christ alone. For we pray this in his precious name, amen. Would you all stand as we go out singing this morning?